後です。女優の沢尻恵梨香容疑者が合成麻薬 MDMA を所持していたとして、今日警視庁に逮捕されました。The arrest of popular actress Sawajiri Erika for drug possession in November 2019, along with her subsequent confession of using illicit drugs for over a decade, stunned Japanese society, where such drug use is especially scandalous. Yet Sawajiri was just one of many high-profile drug arrests in Japan in recent years. Kakami 容疑者は今月2日、東京新宿区で大麻を所持していた大麻取締法違反で。With many countries around the world gradually decriminalizing drugs, Japan stands out as an outlier. In fact, Japan is notoriously home to some of the strongest drug laws in the world, even barring entry to foreigners with histories of drug arrest. Most famously, even Paul McCartney was arrested for drug possession upon arrival in Tokyo in 1980. Former Beatle Paul McCartney was jailed without bail in Tokyo today after being arrested on charges of marijuana possession and smuggling. Where did Japan's strict anti-drug attitudes come from, and how were they sparked by Meiji-era nation-building? What role did narcotics play in Japanese imperial expansion before World War II? And how did narcotics come to be associated with the yakuza criminal underworld after the war? Finally, how has Japan reacted to efforts around the world to decriminalize drugs? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the history of narcotics in Japan, I talked with Dr. Miriam Kingsburg Kadia, associate professor of modern Japanese history in the Department of History at the University of Colorado Boulder. Dr. Kadia is the author of *Moral Nation: Modern Japan and Narcotics in Global History*. Published by the University of California Press in 2014, I started by asking Dr. Kadia to explain the background of Japan's strict anti-drug attitudes. I think that the anti-narcotics attitude that characterizes most of contemporary Japan today probably dates back to the middle of the 19th century. My research suggested that it owes, at least in part, to an attitude that abstinence from drugs is a marker of civilization and the ability to be a sovereign nation. So, so let me say a couple more words about that and what I mean. In the mid 19th century, when Japan was on the cusp of opening to the West, it received information about the Opium War, which was fought between China and Great Britain from 1839 to 1842. And the casus belli was at least partly Britain's right to export unrestricted quantities of opium to China. And because Britain won the war, it was able to secure this privilege and also to begin propagating a narrative of China as being unfit for sovereignty. And in the social Darwinist moment, this was expressed in terms of fitness and nations being winnowed out—a fitness for self-sovereignty that was harmed by. The widespread use of opium. I should note at this point that opium use was quite widespread in Britain as well, but people tended to drink it in laudanum or soothing syrups rather than smoke it. So it was seen as being more medicinal, quote unquote, and somehow different from the quote unquote recreational use that was said to prevail in China. In any case, the sort of narrative that was adopted was of, of China being 
sort of forced into a prone semi-colonial position as a result of the prevalence of opium use there. And Japan received this narrative as it was opening up to the West and wanted to avoid colonization by the Western powers, which were so much stronger, and really gripped onto the idea of remaining abstinent from drugs as a way of also remaining a legitimate sovereign power. Thanks to the cooperation of the United States, which had its own reasons for agreeing to this, Japan was able to negotiate trade treaties with all of the Western powers that restricted opium imports into the nation. And this sort of laid the groundwork for the exclusion of drugs, or at least the putative exclusion of drugs, and also the ability to avoid colonization at a really vulnerable moment. As a result of this early association between drugs and unfitness for self-sovereignty, that really laid the groundwork for the idea that Japan is and should remain drug-free. And that's endured up to the present day. That's a great point about the opium war. And I, you know, my students have always found it very funny that basically Great Britain was you know, fighting a war so there could be a drug dealer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but in your book, you're talking about how during the Meiji period, there's also this, this idea of kind of a, a moral crusade. And so can you talk about the kind of rhetoric? Was it the idea of moral suasion? Or, or how is it that leaders in Japan were trying to instill this kind of anti-narcotic attitude? Yeah. So in my book, I use the category of moral entrepreneur, which are basically social leaders and public public figures who took a stand against drugs for reasons of their own, certainly, and also because they upheld this notion that to be a sovereign nation, Japan had to be drug free. So in a sense, they were nation builders as well. Cultural figures who were in the arts or in literature, for example, who produced works that influenced the public, doctors who tried to devise cures for addiction, scientific researchers who looked into what addiction was on a physiological or chemical level or pharmacological level, or sort of merchants who sought to create a legal framework for how drugs could be regulated because they were needed for medicinal purposes as well. And the criminal justice system, so police, prosecutors, and the criminal courts, and then punitive institutions like prisons that also sought to ensure that trafficking didn't burgeon out of control or at least subvert the goals of the state. So those are, I think, the most important categories of moral entrepreneurs in early 20th century Japan and its empire who were involved with this rhetoric, how to shape drugs as a discourse that would uphold the idea that Japan was a legitimate sovereign nation and ultimately imperial power. And you were talking before about this narrative that we get as a result of the opium war of you know China as this you know the old man of Asia as they as they used to say you know yeah the sick man the sick, of Asia. The sick man of Asia absolutely and you know Japan is trying to position itself in opposition to that but then when we get into say Japan's own imperial moment like you just mentioned that narrative is then being flipped again right now Japan is using that argument how does narcotics fit into Japanese imperialism in say the twenties and thirties well I can think of two major important ways. The first was ideological and the second was more or less financial. Drugs were a major contributor to Japan's ability to build the empire in the first place. I guess the financial aspects are, are sort of more straightforward, although, of course, our data on these will probably never be as strong as we would like. 
But the opium monopolies that were created in the Japanese empire that sold drugs legally to consumers who were mostly Chinese or Korean or Taiwanese, these monopolies directly fed into the coffers of the imperial state, which then were able to be transferred to the army. The army itself was also deeply implicated in trafficking. The soldiers stationed in mainland China in the early 20th century, the 1910s, the 1920s, really didn't have much to do and were bored and not terribly restrained by their command. And a lot of them were involved in, in drug dealing as well that then made expansionism possible. It made it possible for the army to buy weapons and pay spies and that kind of thing. But ideologically speaking, the idea that Japan was abstinent compared to a drug-addicted China, so to speak, meant that both Japan was superior to China, but also that Japan had a moral responsibility to colonize China in order to save it from drugs. Now, the irony in that, of course, is that Japanese imperialism raised consumption of drugs throughout the Asian mainland because it was so lucrative for Japan. But from a rhetorical standpoint, the idea was more or less the same as in the Western colonies in Southeast Asia, that there was this mission to civilize and that civilizing China and its neighbors meant restricting or outright stamping out drugs. So as unsuccessful as this project deliberately was, it was nonetheless a necessary ideological prop of the empire. So far, we've been talking about discourses about narcotics and drug use in places like China. But when do drugs really start to become used in Japan itself? So that's an interesting question. It's not really the case that drugs were never present in Japan. What I did find was that Japanese people tended to use drugs more frequently when they were outside Japan within the empire than in Japan itself. And again, the statistics on this are somewhat patchy because they were collected in various different ways or deliberately not collected at all. But Japan did go through a very famous drug crisis in the early post-war period, the world's first methamphetamine outbreak, in fact. It's hard to know how many people consume drugs, but several million people uh, started using methamphetamines in the wake of World War II. You know, speaking of this kind of moment of drug use in post-war Japan, you know, as a Beatles fan myself, one of the things that comes to mind immediately when thinking about drugs in post-war Japan is Paul McCartney being arrested for marijuana possession. But also you mentioned methamphetamines, and I was thinking of you know, this Kurosawa Akira film, High and Low, where in fact they actually depict usage of methamphetamines, and two of the criminals actually overdose. And I it was kind of shocked to see this on film, on screen in Japan, but you're saying it was like a major issue. So why why is it in the post-war period that drug usage or narcotics in particular becomes such a problem? Yeah. So actually, High and Low is one of the films I routinely assign to my post-war Japan history class because great and comprehensive depiction of, of the amount of desperation that was prevalent in the early post-war period. And I think that probably is is the explanation for, for why methamphetamine became so prevalent. There are some mechanical reasons as well. Meth in wartime Japan was widely circulated and consumed, pushed by the government to enhance labor potentialities, for instance, distributed to pilots undertaking long flights or factory workers who were about to start their shifts, that kind of thing. 
that wasn't even limited to Japan. That was also true in Germany and the United States and, and several of the other allied powers. Methamphetamine was actually first synthesized in Japan. So this circular history is especially interesting. But then these wartime stockpiles after the war was over were filtered to the Japanese public by agents of the U.S. occupation, obviously acting illegally. And once they had been exhausted, methamphetamine more or less became a kind of a mom and pop industry with a lot of small producers. It was very unusual for large producers to be caught, but for the most part, it was a a series of small producers who were creating and using methamphetamine. And I think we can trace the demand to the conditions of the post-war period, which were quite acute. People were homeless, people were starving. Meth was certainly a way of of medicating those problems. It was also a way of making a living for those who were producing it. And so it became enormously popular. In 1951, the Japanese government took action against it with an anti-stimulants law, the Kokuseizai Torishimariho. And this legislation was the basis for arrests of dealers and users for the next five years or so in large numbers. So tens of thousands of people were arrested under this law, and they were mostly sent to to short prison terms. By 1956 or so, conditions changed. Japan was on the road to recovery, which sapped the demand for methamphetamine. I think it's also an important factor that rather than these mom and pop dealers who were so prevalent during during the methamphetamine crisis, the Yakuza, the Japanese mob, stepped into the traffic and sort of claimed it. And the government was happy for it to do so as long as it basically kept it under the carpet. And this sort of led to an association between drug criminality and foreignness because the Yakuza were seen as as not quite Japanese and indeed connected to Koreans and other minorities in Japan. And so this association between drugs and foreignness also contributed to the decrease in their popularity. At the beginning, I was mentioning that there's been these high profile cases kind of highlighting these very strict anti-drug laws. And there has been movements in other countries around the world to decriminalize certain drugs or relax restrictions on drugs. Have there been any conversations like that in Japan? In fact, I think the trend is going in the opposite direction. There's been a push to sort of keep up with substances that are being produced in the lab now. I think the best example that I can think of of the push toward criminalization is magic mushrooms, which were legal in Japan into the Heisei period, into the 2000s. But then in 2002, as a result of sort of a rising awareness of magic mushrooms and a wave of high profile cases in which people who claimed or were seen as being high on magic mushrooms threw themselves from windows or committed other crimes. Ultimately, in 2002, these were also banned. And now I think the trend has been less to decriminalize than to add substances that haven't historically been criminalized to the schedule of drugs that are illegal. Although the use of methamphetamine and creation of methamphetamines by private agents, non-yoksa agents, decreased dramatically after 1956, 
In fact, Japan's history of stimulants didn't end there. There was another high wave of stimulant crime in the 1970s. And then again, around 1997, we sort of see the use of drugs like meth and speed peaking again. And we're still sort of living in that moment of relatively high drug crime. Japan is often seen as, as not having much of a drug problem, partly because the statistics it collects are so bad. One of the major sources people use to assert that there are no major communities of drug users in Japan are self-reported surveys. But given that the government administers these surveys and only selectively to certain groups, they almost certainly undercount the problem. So anti-drug attitudes remain very fierce in Japan, but they don't necessarily prevent people from actually experimenting with drugs. I'm Tristan Gruno. And this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.